You're listening to The Word of Hope, a radio ministry of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Our preacher is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller with today's Word of Hope. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints of God, we consider this morning this epistle text set before us from Paul's second letter to the saints of God in Corinth, but first a little bit of background. St. Paul arrived in Corinth in sometime in the year 51 A.D., in the middle of his second missionary journey. He had, uh, he had gone from Troas over to northern Macedonia and established churches all down the northern and western side of the Aegean. That's uh, the church in Philippi, and then the church in Thessalonica, and then the church in Berea. But in each of these churches, he was driven off uh, by his opponents, and now he's down in Athens. That's Acts chapter 17. Uh, and after an unsuccessful stay there, he travels about 60 miles to the west to visit Corinth. Now, Corinth was a key city in the ancient world. It was the capital of Greece, according to the Romans. Even though Athens was right down the street, they wanted their capital at Corinth. Corinth was a wealthy place and a ruthless place, in a major trading city, and it was known for its sexual impurity. In fact, to be called a Corinthian was the same, it's a curse word almost, as to be called licentious. Now, Paul, on his way to Corinth, and he tells the Corinthians this in his first letter, as Paul is traveling from Athens over to Corinth, he resolves something. He resolves to know among them nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul then settles in Corinth for about a year and a half. And he works there as a tent maker and a preacher, serving with Timothy and Silas and also with Aquila and Priscilla, who he meets in Corinth and stays with. And the result is a church filled with both Jewish and Gentile converts. It is, by the way, and this is in Acts chapter 18, and just a kind of a side note, that Paul appears before Gallio, the Roman proconsul of Achaia, and Gallio was a pretty famous guy in ancient history, and we are able to identify the dates of Paul's trips from that incident. We know that Gallio was simply in Corinth for one year from 50 to 51, so we know when Paul was there as well. Now Paul leaves Corinth. He travels through Ephesus, back to Jerusalem, and then to Antioch, which is the home base for his missionary journeys. And then, after staying there for a little while, embarks on the third missionary journey, in which he goes straight to Ephesus and sets up camp in Ephesus to evangelize that whole region of Asia, what we now call Turkey. And he establishes what looks like a seminary in Ephesus where he's training pastors for all the regional churches. Churches, for example, in cities like Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, all churches that would a few years later receive letters from Jesus in the Revelation. These churches are the churches that Paul is working with to train pastors to be in these places with his companions in this third missionary journey. Now, we kind of need a map for this, to, but imagine this. Here's the Aegean Sea. It's kind of in the middle, and Ephesus is on the west side of the sea, and Corinth is over on the east side. Uh, but there's a lot of travel going through the, uh, through the sea there, especially a lot of um, uh, a business trade as well as people traveling back and forth. So when Paul's over here in Ephesus, he gets word from Corinth about how things are going in the church, and they're not going very well. The church was incredibly troubled. 
They had divided into factions. There was the Paul faction, the Peter faction, and the Christ faction. Their worship services had devolved into pagan chaos. They were permitting, even promoting, sexual immorality in the church. And they no longer had the Lord's Supper because of their disunity of doctrine and in practice. Paul dispatches his first Corinthians, this letter, to help sort out these problems. And there were some major improvements. But there were people who, when this letter from Paul was received, questioned his authority, questioned the sufficiency of Paul's teaching, questioned if Paul even had a right to say anything at all in the church. They questioned his authority as an apostle. And this is made worse by the Judaizing contendent that works in the church. The Judaizers were, well, this is the error that Paul was facing constantly. They were those that taught that the gospel wasn't enough, that you need more. In Galatia, the region to the west of uh, Ephesus, the Judaizers came and said, it's not enough for you all to be baptized. You have to also be circumcised and eat kosher food and keep the Sabbath. In fact, wherever Paul went, there in the shadow were teachers who were saying, Paul is good about the gospel, but it's not enough. He doesn't go far enough. He doesn't teach the mysteries. Paul doesn't teach how to live a godly life. Paul might be good with the gospel, but there is not enough law. Now, uh, I don't know if you've, if this has happened to you, that you've noticed this, but we normally think of the devil doing work where there's where there's darkness and where there's prevailing sin, that the devil is doing his work where where people are doing wicked sort of things. But the longer that I am a Christian and the longer that I am a pastor, the more I'm beginning to notice how the devil attacks us, not at the point of our sin, although there is an attack there, but even more profoundly, the devil attacks us right at the point of our good works. So you settle in to do something good, something that you think will be helpful, that will be nice for the neighbor, something that will be very peaceful, and all of a sudden, everything falls apart. There's an incredible amount of conflict and controversy where there should be peace and there should be harmony. Now, I guess when we think about it, it makes sense that the devil would fight against our good works The devil would fight against our good intentions. The devil would fight against our serving the neighbor. And so we know that the devil fights against the church. We know that the devil fights against us. We know that the devil hates, and this is maybe a, well, it's a profound thing to consider. We know the devil hates the fact that we are here this morning, that we're listening to the Lord's word that we're hearing that our sins are forgiven and that Jesus smiles at us. He hates that you, now having heard that the Lord loves you, that you go to tell your family that the Lord loves them as well. He hates that we have a roof over our head so that we don't have to have the sun beating down or the rain falling on us while we hear this sort of thing. The devil hates it that we would have a food bank and that we would serve our neighbors with, uh, who are hungry with food. 
The devil hates it that we would that we would go out and look and see who our neighbors are and try to love them. He hates this and he fights against it. And and we find that wherever we as the Lord intends good, that the devil is there intending evil, intending wickedness and sowing strife. So it is with Paul. He builds a church. And like Luther said, right next door, the devil builds a chapel. And the devil from this chapel is sowing his seeds of false doctrine. The devil has a singular work to do, and that is to destroy faith in Christ and destroy our love for one another. And the way he does that in the shadow of Paul's ministry is to confuse the law and the gospel. The devil is trying, and it's, this is a simple strategy. The devil is trying with Paul and with the saints of God in Corinth to mix in a little bit of their doing, a little bit of their obedience, a little decision for Christ or whatever it is. He's trying to convince them that they have the gospel because of something that they did. And the same is true for us. The devil does this precise thing with us. Tempting us to think that we have God's grace because we've earned it. And if that doctrine, if that false teaching gets in there, then there is no longer grace. God's gospel is no longer free. Salvation is now not a matter of God's gifts because we're the ones that have accomplished it and somehow it, God owes this salvation to us. And it's just that simple. And it's happening constantly. It's happening around us in the, in the teaching and in the doctrine that we hear and it's happening even in us with our own flesh. The devil is tempting us in one way or another to trust in ourselves, our works, or even trusting in our own faith rather than trusting in Jesus. So in Corinth... There were the Judaizing teachers there saying that Paul tore down Moses, that he despised the law, that his teaching was not sufficient. So Paul writes 2 Corinthians. And we hear a section of it in chapter 3 where he basically says, you see in the Old Testament itself that the glory of the law was a glory passing away, a glory that was giving way to the gospel. It was a ministry of death and of condemnation, but the Lord has now in the gospel brought a ministry of life. Here's the text. You have it on your bulletin. Such is the confidence, writes Paul, that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves, to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses' face because of its glory. Remember how when Moses came off the mountain or whenever he came out of the temple, his face was glowing with rays so that he had to wear a veil over his face. If they couldn't gaze at the face of Moses because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness much far exceeding glory. 
And indeed, this is the case. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. In other words, because of the glorious truth of the gospel, the law has come to an end. Because of the work of Christ, the condemning work of the Ten Commandments has been silenced. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more what will what is permanent will have glory. If you, says Paul, are tempted back to the law, remember that the law's glory was fading while the gospel's glory is eternal. And it's because the gospel gives eternal life. The law was given to get us to Christ, who is, says Paul in Romans, the end of the law. The law is a teacher to show us our sin, but the gospel is a teacher as well, and it teaches a greater thing, that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. The law tells us of the righteousness that God requires, a righteousness that none of us can obtain, but the gospel gives us that righteousness, declares us to have that righteousness, imputes that righteousness to our names. The law condemns our sins. But the gospel tells of Jesus, who stood and took our sins upon himself, bore our sins to the cross, and suffered the condemnation outlined by the law in our place. <coughs> Excuse me. So the gospel sets us free free from the coercion and condemnation of the law, free from the law's threats and punishments. The gospel forgives our sins and cleanses our conscience. It is the gospel that is the ministry of the glory of God. As Paul says in a few verses, and this is a verse that we should write in our hearts, that we behold the glory of God precisely in the face of of Christ. Now I suspect that in the end we are all tempted by the devil in the same way that the saints of Corinth were. That is to mix in a little law with the gospel, to sprinkle in a few of our own works with our salvation. But this temptation, when we consider what it really is, is a temptation to, to think of God chiefly as the righteous judge. But here and in all of the scriptures, we learn how God wants us to think of him. When we think of God, we are to think of Christ and him crucified. When you hear of Jesus dying on the cross, when you know that promise, you are beholding the glory of God. When you trust in Christ, and in His blood, and in His righteousness, then you are knowing God as He would have Himself known to you as a merciful and gracious and kind Savior. The city of Corinth doesn't even exist anymore. It's just ruins, piles of rocks. Its glory has passed away. But the glory of God the glory of the gospel. God be praised. The glory of the, 
message that they heard in Corinth continues today, even continues with us. And this glory, this gospel, leads to life eternal. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's Word of Hope. Hope Lutheran Church is located at 1345 Macon Street in Aurora, Colorado. Their weekly schedule is as follows. Sunday morning worship at 9.15, adult Bible class and youth Sunday school at 10.45 a.m. On Tuesday mornings, there is a matin service at 8.30 a.m. with a Bible class to follow at 9.30 a.m. You can find out more about Hope Lutheran Church at www.hope-aurora.org. That's www.hope-aurora.org. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in His grace.